Have you ever wondered why it is so difficult to maintain fiery passion for Christ? In one moment, you can be on fire for the Lord. And then a few months later, that fire can diminish and your devotion grow cold. Why is that? It was William Booth who said, it is the nature of a fire to go out. Therefore, you must keep it stirred. You must keep it fed. You must remove the ashes. This morning, I want to preach to you a sermon that's entitled, Clearing Away the Clutter. Clearing Away the Clutter. I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. As we continue our summer-long sermon series entitled, Rebuild, I invite you to take a look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 13. I want to begin at verse 1. I want to conclude at verse 9. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water but had hired Balaam to call down a curse on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the high priest had been put in charge of all the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. He had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithe of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. From the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission, and I came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased. I threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms. And then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Nehemiah had been appointed as the governor of Jerusalem and the surrounding area for approximately 12 years. The way we know that is because his ministry began, according to Nehemiah chapter 2, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes of Babylon. In our passage, he says, it's the 32nd year of the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. So for 12 years, more than a decade, Nehemiah gave good leadership to the people of God and the city of God. By now you know that the book of Nehemiah 
is really divided up into two parts. The first part is chapters 1 to 7. It describes the rebuilding of the city of God. The second part is chapters 8 to 13. It defines and describes the rebuilding of the people of God. I really think that the building up of the wall is an object lesson of what God wanted to do in the building up of the lives of God's people. Both the people and the wall were in shambles because of the same reason, because of sin. And so God, in a very dramatic way, empowered the people to rebuild the wall, shoring up the gaps, resetting and refortifying the gates, and they did all of that in less than 52 days. In less than two months, they refortified the city, and by that action, they're communicating to the watching world, God did that. It wasn't that they did it in their own power. They had very few tools. They had very limited expertise. It is God who rebuilt the wall around the city. God is the one who refortified the sacred city of Jerusalem. And in a similar way, what God did to the city, he wants to do to the people. He wants to refortify their lives. He wants to do it in such a dramatic way that the only conclusion from the watching world has to be God did that. So you'll recall that when Nehemiah turns his sights away from the wall but towards the people, in chapter 8, on the first day of the seventh month, they have a Bible conference. Nehemiah gets Ezra to be the keynote preacher. And Ezra comes and the people gather as one man, some 50,000 individuals strong. They clamor for the word of God. And Ezra preaches for six hours from the break of dawn until high noon. And nobody is bored. There, there's no teenage boy who's staring at his Apple Watch saying, when is that old man going to stop speaking? There was no young girl who wondered, does this toga make my hips look fat? There was no middle-aged woman who wondered if the roast in the crock pot was going to burn. And there was no senior adult man who somehow was nodding off to sleep, only to later blame his morning medication for his sermonic siesta. And so none of that was going on because everybody was on the edge of their seat. They could not wait to hear the next thing that Ezra the preacher was going to say. And so... For six hours, they heard the word read to them and explained and illustrated and applied. On the 10th day of that same seventh month, they would have had Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Every year, this was a, a high holiday that, that marked the forgiveness of God towards his people through the blood sacrifice of an animal. And on that day, uh, they, there was always a, uh, an animal that was sacrificed, and that blood symbolically covered all of their sins from the past year. And in dramatic fashion, the high priest would lay his hands upon a goat and symbolically transfer all the sins of Israel from the past year. Somebody would be assigned to take that scapegoat out into the wild desert to be left alone, never to return to camp, symbolic that their sins have been taken away, never to return. And by that action, they would stave off God's righteous wrath and his holy hostility towards their sin for another 365 days. 
Yom Kippur was always observed, and it was powerful. And we know that it's just a foreshadowing of Christ, for Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And by his death, his death was once and for all, not to be repeated annually each year. And his blood covers not just believing Israel, but even believing Gentiles, that all of God's people are covered by the precious blood of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The people of Nehemiah were being rebuilt with a Bible conference in Yom Kippur. And then on the 15th day to the 23rd day of the seventh month, they had the Feast of Tabernacles. And during that feast, they remembered God's provision. That as God led their forefathers out of Egyptian captivity into the promised land, it was God that provided everything that they needed. He led them as a pillar of fire uh, by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He provided food for them to eat. Manna fell from the heavens. He provided a drink for them for water came from a solid rock. It is God who made sure that their clothes were not moth-eaten. They never wore out even though they traveled some 40 years and their feet were never swollen. Can you believe that? They traveled for 40 years and their feet were never blistered and swollen. Your feet get blistered when you travel around Disney World for two days. Yet these people, they traveled in the hot desert for 40 years and their feet were never swollen. When they went into the promised land, it is God who provided houses they did not build. They drank from wells they did not dig. They enjoyed vineyards they did not plant. That is grace upon grace. And every year, the people of God would gather for the Feast of Tabernacles. They would literally live in a hut or a tabernacle for a week and they would celebrate and worship. Oh, but you may recall that when we came to Nehemiah chapter 9, we read that on the 24th day of that same month, they gave up their feasting for fasting. Their shouts gave way to sobs. They stood there aware of their sin. They responded in brokenhearted confession. They were wearing sackcloth and they had sprinkled ashes on their foreheads, signs of contrition and remorse and regret. And they confessed their brokenness to God. And they returned to the word of God. They had renewal of worship for some three hours individually. They read the word. They read the scripture. And for another three hours, they worshiped like nobody's business. And they just praised the Lord. Following that in chapter 10, 84 leaders signed a covenant where they said, we renew our promise with God, not only us as leaders and our families, but all of the Israelites, we will renew our commitment to the Lord and we will give him our family and our finances. He'll be in charge of who we give our daughters to in marriage and he will tell us how to spend our money and we will oblige and obey willingly and generously. And so they made commitments in their families and their finances. You and I came to Nehemiah chapter 12. It came time to dedicate that glorious wall and all the people gathered they were divided into two groups. The choir was divided into two. One group went north around the city. The other group went south around the city. They finally met there at the Sheep Gate. And as they walked, they worshiped and they praised the Lord. And they were so loud that their worship and praise could be heard from far away. Their worship went from the streets to the sanctuary. It went from the marketplace to the sacred place. And when they took their spot in the temple, they continued in the overflow of their worship unto the Lord. This is the backdrop of when we come to Nehemiah chapter 13. I don't know how the king sent word to Nehemiah, but somehow he sent word to Nehemiah, you need to come back to the royal court in Susa. 
And so Nehemiah obliged. He, he went back. I don't know how long he stayed, but sometime later, he came back to the sacred city of Jerusalem. And I wonder that as he traveled back, what did he think he would see? I bet he thought he would see a continuation of revival. I bet he thought, you know what? What was started so many years ago, it just continues. For there is a, there's a hunger for the holy things of God. Uh, there is a dedication and a desperation in the hearts and lives of the people. The last time I saw all of my friends and family members there in, in Jerusalem, they were so salivating for the Savior. They were so hungry for holy God. They could not get enough of God's word and his worship. I bet that has grown exponentially. I bet that when Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem, he expected to see a continuation of revival. But instead, commitment had grown cold into complacency. The fire that they had, it was nearly snuffed out. Apparently, they hadn't kept it stirred. They hadn't kept it fed. They had not kept the ashes removed. So in the opening line of our passage, we are told that, that on that day, the law of Moses was read. We know it's from the book of Deuteronomy, where it says that no Ammonite or Moabite is permitted into the sacred assembly of Israel. Now, that's interesting. It's interesting that he brings that up. If you know something about the backstory of the Moabites and the Ammonites, you realize that their origin is, uh, how can I say it, a little lackluster. Their origin is found in Genesis 19. The Moabites and the Ammonites are first formed from an incestual sexual relationship between Lot and two of his daughters. Now that's rank. That's scandalous. The two girls got daddy drunk in his drunken stupor. They came in, uh, the older daughter one night, the younger daughter the second night. Both of them conceived, and the older daughter gave birth to the Ammonites. The younger daughter gave birth to the Moabites. This is their origin. Furthermore, when the Israelites are being brought out of Egypt, the Moabites and the Ammonites do not give them proper passage as they make their way into the promised land. They will not sell them bread. They will not sell them anything to drink. And to add insult to injury, the king of Moab hires the false prophet Balaam. And he employs Balaam to call down a curse upon the Israelites. Now, Nehemiah tells us in a parenthetical way that God transformed the curse into a blessing. If you know anything about the story of Balaam, you realize that he is a false prophet. He is a hired gun by the king of Moab. And not once or twice, but three times, he attempts to open his mouth and call down a curse upon the people of Israel. But to his own surprise, every time he opens his mouth, he does not speak a curse. Out comes a blessing. Now, he's shocked. He's, he's perplexed. He doesn't know where this is coming from. He thinks to himself, I am going to speak a curse. And as he opened his mouth, boop, out came a blessing. And every time God frustrated the potential curse and replaced it with a bona fide blessing. Now this happened not once, twice, but three times. 
In fact, the king of Moab said, what are you doing? Uh, You're on my payroll. I'm telling you what to do. Why can't you open your mouth and call down a curse? He said, I'm doing my best, but I can't do it. If you know anything about the story of Balaam, you may remember the familiar part that he is on his donkey. He's making his way down the road. And all of a sudden, the donkey, that dumb donkey, all of a sudden, the donkey takes a hard left and goes into the ditch. Balaam gets off the donkey and smacks it. Pulls the donkey back on the road, gets on it, goes a little bit further, and the donkey goes off on the ditch again. Balaam gets up and smacks it a second time. This happens three times. Eventually, he starts talking to the donkey. You know you're in trouble when you start talking to the donkey. He started talking to the donkey. What are you doing? And the donkey talked back. Don't you see the angel of the Lord in the middle of the road? He's got a sword in his hands, so I am trying to help you. Have I ever been an unfaithful donkey? And the answer is no. I've never been unfaithful. I am trying to avert your danger by going to the left or going to the right because that angel of God has a sword in his hands. And in the story, Balaam eventually sees the angel. But in the course, he talks to the donkey and the donkey talks to him. And God speaks through Balaam's donkey. Of course, I've said the same preacher joke that every preacher's ever said when it comes to that passage. And the joke kind of goes like this. Listen, if God can speak through Balaam's donkey, surely he can speak through me. Right? Don't laugh too much. But if God can speak through a dumb old donkey, then surely he can speak through me. Right? And so... That's the story of Balaam. And and, and, and Nehemiah reminds us that God is in the business of transforming a curse into a blessing. What was meant for evil, God flipped it on its head, turned it inside out, and made it for good. You know, ironically, this is not the only time in sacred scripture when God turns a curse into a blessing. Do you also not know that in the book of Deuteronomy, elsewhere it says, Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And yet every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us that Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh, stepped out of heaven, stepped into earth, lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death on a tree, a cross made of wood. And Jesus Looked as if he was cursed. Jesus took the condemnation that I deserve and you deserve upon himself. And Jesus hung there to make us holy. That the innocent one became guilty so that we who are guilty may be declared innocent in God's sight. The righteous one was declared unrighteous so that we who are unrighteous might be declared righteous in God's sight for all of eternity. And Jesus hung on the cross and he took that curse and transformed it into a blessing to you and to me because God is in the business of taking something that is awful and making it awesome. God is in the business of taking something that is dingy and making it delightful. God is up to something when he takes that which is shameful and makes it salvific. God is in the business of taking a curse, transforming it into a blessing. I don't know about you, but I'm happy today that God is a God who can take something so vile, so terrible that was meant for evil and transform it into a blessing unto God's people. Nehemiah just reminds us 
that God is the one who takes a curse and transforms it into a blessing. But still the question in your mind is, why do you bring up this story? Why tell us that no Ammonite or Moabite can be in the sacred assembly? Why give us the story of, of Balaam and, and what God did through there? What, what is the point? Later in the passage, you understand why Nehemiah tells us this. Because while Nehemiah was gone, back to the Persian court of Kenar Erxes, while he was gone, Eliashib provided Tobiah a room in the temple of God. That may not sound like a big deal to you. It may actually sound quite trivial and trite. So what? That this man named Eliashib provided another man named Tobiah a room in the temple of God. Now, you think to yourself in your sanctified mind, well, maybe this man needed a room. Maybe he needed a place to stay. Maybe he had fallen on hard times. Maybe this man Eliashib is just being merciful to this man named Tobiah. Maybe he's doing a good thing. Why does Nehemiah say that's an evil, wicked thing? Well, the answer is that this is not the first time that you've met Eliashib. In fact, Eliashib is introduced to us in Nehemiah chapter 3. He's the high priest. His name is the first name listed among the workers on the wall. Eliashib, the high priest, the preacher, the pastor, rolled up his sleeves, got his hands dirty. He was the first one to say, yes, let us refortify this city. Let's shore up the gaps and holes. Let's reestablish the gates. Yes, he was the first one in the list. He is the high priest. Tobiah. Well, if you've been with us any moment over the summer, you, you kind of know who Tobiah is. Tobiah is first introduced to us in Nehemiah chapter 4. He is part of the opposition that is visceral and vile against the work of the people of God around the city of God. Tobiah is in cahoots with a man named Samballot. Those guys are thick as thieves. They are two individuals that, that, that really uh, saw the rebuilding of the city of God as a threat to their own authority and their own power. So they ridiculed the work you remember, it was Tobiah who said, what those Jews are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would topple over their wall of stones. They're making a paper mache wall. It's terrible. It's pathetic. It, it, it won't even stand up to anything. And so they constantly issued words of ridicule and opposition. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3, Tobiah is introduced as Tobiah the Ammonite. Tobiah, the Ammonite? But wait a minute. In verse 1, it's a quotation of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, the law of God says to the servant Moses that no Moabite or Ammonite should be allowed access into the sacred assembly. But Tobiah is not only given access into the sacred assembly, and he's an Ammonite, but Tobiah not only gets in the sacred assembly, he sets up shop in the house of God. 
He's given a room in the house of God. It's a room that is empty. It's a room that should house tithes and offerings. Tithes of grain and new wine and oil. It's a place where where other leaders of the temple need to reside. And it's a place where the articles of the temple need to be housed when they're not being used. And this room was empty. Therein gives you a little indication of the depth of complacency. Remember in chapter 10, the people said, we make a new covenant and a recommitment that God will have our family and our finances. But here we are just a few chapters later, and these people had broken their promises to God. Can you imagine that? Church people who break their promises. Can you imagine that? People who make promises to God and then don't make good on those promises. It was only a couple of chapters later, and the room that should house the tithes and offerings is empty. What does that tell you? It tells you people aren't given the way they're supposed to be given. And you ask yourself, who gave Tobiah permission to go into the house of God? Who gave him permission to live in a storeroom in the house of God? And the answer, Eliashib, the high priest. He should know better. I mean, if there's anybody who should know the book, the preacher should know the book. If there's anybody who should know the rules, the preacher should know the rules. If there's anybody who should obey the rules, the preacher should obey the rules. Can I get a hearty amen? That wasn't very hearty, but I'll take it. I mean, if anybody should know how you ought to live, it should be the high priest. And you're telling me that it's the high priest Eliashib who gives Tobiah the Ammonite? Not only permission to gather in the sacred assembly, but to move in to an empty room that should house the tithes and offerings. And it's located in the very house temple of God. I contend that Tobiah had no intention of moving out. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Because he brought in his household goods. If you ever bring in your household goods... You have an intention of staying there for a while. This past weekend, uh, we moved Molly Grace back to the University of Mobile. We had a little caravan of about three cars. All three cars had some household goods in them. Now, you may think to yourself, why would she need all that stuff? And that's a question I was asking myself as I made my way up and down the staircase. Why does she need all this stuff? It seemed as if the stuff grew exponentially as I came back out of the dorm room to pick up something else that was on the sidewalk. Where did that come from? Did somebody else just place it there? But it all went up into the room. Now, Molly Grace will live there, not permanently, but she'll reside there for several months. We won't move her back home until May. So she knows she's going to be there for a while. So she wanted to bring her household goods. Tobiah is the same way. He may not stay there forever, but he has no plans of leaving soon. So he brings his household goods. He sets up the chair that he likes, the couch that he likes, the bed that he prefers. He puts the, the, the pictures on the wall. 
He's got everything that he needs. He's got it all set up. It's a man cave, brothers. It's, he's got his man cave set up, and he's right there, and he kicks back, puts his feet on the, on the uh, ottoman, and he's right there ready just to relax because he's in the house of God, and he's Tobiah the Ammonite. Why in the world would the high priest give public enemy number one the keys to the kingdom? Why would he do that? I think the answer is in the text. It's a little bit later in Nehemiah 13. It's actually specifically told for us in verse 28. In verse 28, you will read that Eliashib, the high priest, he had a grandson. And that grandson married a daughter of Samballot. Now there's family. I told you that Samballot and Tobiah are thick as thieves. Our text tells you that Eliashib the high priest had a close association with Tobiah the Ammonite. And I think that circumstances cluttered conviction. I think in an effort to make peace in the family, Eliashib gave permission to Tobiah to set up shop in the house of God just to avoid some confrontation around the Thanksgiving dinner table. I think that he, 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 he permitted the circumstance to cloud his conviction. He should know the truth. He should, he should stand up for the truth. Eliashib should not permit Tobiah to do this evil thing, to be an Ammonite who goes into the sanctuary of God, into the very temple of God, and lives there and dwells there. He should not allow it, but for the sake of family peace. He says, I'm going to permit it. The circumstance cluttered his convictions. Now, before you want to throat punch Eliashib, before you want to lay hands on him, take him out back, teach him a lesson or two, before you want to hurt that holy man of God, can I just remind you that what Eliashib did is duplicated in far too many homes and houses across the Christian landscape of our day where we permit circumstances to clutter our conviction in an effort to keep peace we won't stand up for the truth I'll give you a few examples I have known strong Christian individuals who have a very robust theology when it comes to homosexuality. But then when it's their son who comes out gay, everything changes. Pastor, I know what the Bible says, but that's my son. I, I, I know what the Bible says, but that's my son. So in an effort to make peace, I just won't say anything. I just permit him to do what he wants to do with whomever he wants to do it. And I, I just, Pastor, I got to keep peace. Circumstances cluttering 
conviction. I've had other great Christian men and women parents who are adamant that people should not live together before they get married. And they're adamant that that is living in sin, to live together, acting as if you're a husband and wife before you actually are a husband and a wife. And I've had Christian parents who are so strong in their convictions about that moral purity until their daughter falls in love and moves in with that boy. Pastor, I know it's not good. I know it's wrong. It was wrong when I was young. Pastor was wrong when you were young. To which I want to say, how old do you think I am? Pastor, we know it, it was wrong when we were young, but times have changed. People are different than they used to be. To which I want to say, but God's morality has not. God doesn't change. God does not evolve in his morality. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. What those parents are telling me is that circumstances have now cluttered conviction. I've heard from Christian individuals, and they have a very strong theology about abortion. And they know that life begins at conception. They know that abortion is murder. They can't give any defense for it until, until their precious little girl comes up pregnant. Pastor, we know it's wrong. We know that it's not good. But pastor, I am not going to allow that one mistake. That one mistake? I'm not going to allow that one mistake to dominate her entire life. So the only plausible, the only plausible option is for us to go to the clinic. Now, pastor, don't judge me. Don't judge what I'm doing and the decision that I make. God understands circumstances, cluttered convictions. Before we get really mad at Eliashib for permitting Tobiah the Ammonite to set up shop in a room in the temple, he should know better. How many times, brothers and sisters, do we do things that we should know better? And the reason we do it is for the same reason in principle that Eliashib did it. Because circumstances of life somehow clutter our convictions. And our convictions change. Our convictions get soft. We get weak on the truth of God and his word. Friends, sometimes clutter, the clutter of circumstances, it can cloud our convictions. Sometimes, sometimes for some of us, it's more like our commitment, it diminishes into complacency. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. Sometimes our commitment diminishes into complacency because of busyness. We are so busy. We got so many things to do, so many deadlines, so many places to go, so many people to see. We just don't have enough time in the day. I wish somehow we could have more hours than 24 hours and more days of the week than seven because there's so much that we have to do, so much schedule, so much going on. I'm so busy so that Sunday looks just like Thursday. There's nothing significantly different about Sunday. 
And so we approach life and we just become so busy. Sometimes our commitment uh, becomes complacency and fear. There are people who are simply afraid, afraid of the future, uh, afraid of, of rejection, afraid of loss, afraid of the loss of wealth, afraid of the loss of health. I mean, we are in the midst, I guess, of a pandemic. Uh, I thought we were coming out. Maybe we're boomerang backed in. But regardless, I get the sense that I hear more fear being elevated once again. And friend, need I just remind you that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self-control. I've been told what you've been taught. There are 365 do not fears in the Bible. I don't know if that's true. Sometimes I think there's more than that. But I get why somebody would say there's 365 do not fears, one for every day of the, of the year. And that daily you and I need to be reminded that we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear, friend. We, are, uh, we, we have just a, a bombardment of, of messaging that comes at us and it's all much of it draped in fear. We have nothing to fear. We have faith in Christ. Sometimes our commitment becomes complacency in our materialism. Another word for materialism is greed. Another fancy word for greed is covetousness. It just simply means that you want more of what you have enough of already. You want another house, even though the house you have is fine. You want another truck, even though the truck you have is fine. You want another wife, even though the wife you have is fine. It's wanting more of what you have enough of already. And friend, God provides all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we become complacent simply because of selfishness. At the heart of all sin is selfishness. At the heart of all selfishness is sin. It was John MacArthur who said that the call of the gospel is a call of self-denial. For Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me daily. The call of the gospel upon your life and mine is a call of self-denial. The moment we become selfish, we begin to step into sin. Sometimes, friends, we become complacent because of our past. And let's just be honest. Some of us have a past to be proud of. Others have a past that you don't want anybody else to know about. But regardless of whether you are proud of your past or whether you despise your past, remember what the Apostle Paul says. This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, forget what lies behind. If it's so good, don't worship it. Don't rest on your laurels. If it's so bad, don't let that paralyze you and define who you are. Forget what lies behind. Strain forward what lies ahead. And God will call you upward in Christ Jesus. You know, sometimes we simply have complacency because of unconfessed sin. It kind of just cripples us and paralyzes us and clutters our life. And we simply need to remember that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you remember what the word of God says to Isaiah the prophet? Isaiah saw the Lord and he said, I am undone. I'm as good as dead. I mean, I've seen the king. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. And God told one of those six-winged creatures to take a live coal from the altar, that place of forgiveness and sacrifice, to take that live coal and touch Isaiah's lips and say, see, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. God knows. 
That sometimes what's greater than the dirty deed is the guilt associated with that dirty deed. And God says, my my provision of forgiveness is so grand, it is so glorious, it is so gracious, it'll take care of your guilt first and then cover over your deeds. Friends, some of us are cluttered because of complacency. And that complacency is, is found and bound in things like busyness and fear and materialism and selfishness and unconfessed sin. Let me ask you, uh, in your house, do you have one of those cluttered drawers? It's the drawer that everything goes in. Um, If you open that drawer, you open it at your own risk. Because if you put your hand in that drawer, you may pull out a nub. I mean, you know that drawer? Some people have a room like that. They, They throw everything in that room, and if you open the door, Katie, bar the door, because you have no idea what's coming out of that room. You don't know what's living in there because a cluttered mess is a hot mess. And a cluttered mess can be dangerous. It's dangerous to live your life with clutter. You could trip, you could fall, you could hurt yourself. It's dangerous, spiritually speaking, to live a life of clutter. Don't allow your circumstances to clutter your convictions. Don't allow your commitment to become complacency. All of that is a description of clutter in your life. Do you see what Nehemiah did with the clutter? Nehemiah came in and he forcefully kicked it out. I mean, he laid hands on it. He forcefully kicked it out. Then he purified the room and then He replaced it with the good things of God. What a great equation for holiness. What a great equation for your life and for mine. If there is clutter in your your space, if there's clutter in your life, first and foremost, with power and conviction, you've got to get rid of it. You've got to evict it. You can't be timid about it. You've got to be tenacious about it. Jesus said, if your right eye calls you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand calls you to sin, cut it off. Now, friend, did Jesus really want us to be Christian pirates? to walk around with hooks on our hands and patches over our eyes. No, I think Jesus is telling us be tenacious about the truth of God. Be ruthless about righteousness. If you have anything that's cluttered your life, if you have anything that's compromised your convictions, if you've had anything that has, that has spiraled you down into complacency, then you've got to be ruthless about it and kick it out. This is more about fellowship with God than salvation of God, Okay. I'm not saying that you lose your salvation, but I am saying that it hampers your fellowship with God. So if there's something that's cluttering your life, you've got to evict it ruthlessly. Paul said in Colossians, he's speaking to the church when he says, put to death anything that belongs to the earthly nature. Sexual morality, impurity, lust, greed, evil desires. That phrase, put to death, it literally means to mortify, to kill, slaughter, or slay. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the redeemed. And even though your sin has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more, sometimes you allow that sin to rear its ugly head in your life. And Paul is saying to the church, anytime that clutter rears its ugly head, you've got to slay it. You've got to slaughter it. You've got to put it to death. It's an aggressive term. Don't ever grow weary at fighting your earthly nature. You fight it. Every time it rears its ugly head, you fight it down, put it down, put it to death, slay it, slaughter it. And then, Nehemiah says, he ordered for the room to be purified. So, uh, what, how do we do that? What? 
whatever is pure, whatever is right, whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is excellent, think on these things. Because how you think impacts how you act. What you believe determines how you behave. And then Nehemiah, he replaced the bad stuff with good stuff. you got to do the same thing. If you kick out a bad thought, you better replace it with a godly thought. Because if you don't replace it with a godly thought, guess what's going to happen? The bad thought's coming right back. If, if you don't, if, if you say, look, I'm going to kick out, I'm going to evict a bad activity in my life, you better replace it with a godly activity. Because if you don't replace it with a godly activity, that simple activity will come right back in. So what Nehemiah does, he shows us how we are to live holy before the Lord. I think what Nehemiah does is a precursor of what Jesus will do. 400 years later, Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem the very last week of his life. He is riding a, a colt, a donkey. The people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're laying down palm branches. Jesus, like a beeline, makes his way to the temple. And there in the temple, he sees so much clutter, compromised convictions, everything just done out of complacency and convenience. There is so much fear. There's so much materialism. There's so much greed, so much unconfessed sin. Jesus goes ballistic. He overturns the money changers' tables. He makes a whip out of cords and drives out the money changers and their animals. Mark tells us that people were coming to bring merchandise, and Jesus bowed up on them. Jesus said, you ain't bringing that mess, not in my house. Get out. And then Jesus said, this is to be a house of prayer you've made into a den of robbers. Clean the clutter out of your life. What Jesus did on Palm Sunday, yes, it's physical, but it's also symbolic and spiritual. What he did on Palm Sunday, he does fully on Good Friday. Because on Good Friday, Jesus, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us. The one who knew no clutter, became cluttered for us. And he stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem. He looked like a mangled mass of flesh. He was so bloody and beaten, he didn't look human, let alone alive. And as Jesus made his way, cluttered as he was, up the Scotiabank Hill called Golgotha, he was there when the Roman soldiers stretched him wide. They nailed uh, uh, spikes into his wrist and his feet, hoisted him into the air, and for six hours, one on Friday in the third decade of the first century, God the Father poured all of the condemnation for your clutter and mine squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus. And Jesus took it. He took all the clutter. He took all the compromise. He took all the complacency. He took it all upon himself to the point where he says, it is finished. Purity has been offered Cleansing has come. He bowed his head. He gave up his ghost. They placed his dead body into a borrowed tomb. They rolled a stone in front of it. He was there for the rest of Friday, all day Saturday, even early into Sunday. But Sunday morning came. Sunday morning came. And when Sunday morning came, Jesus burst forth from the tomb. And he is victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave, and all clutter in your life and mine. And Jesus is victorious. When I come to Nehemiah 13, 1 to 9, I think it's a description of how we get clutter out of our life. I hear the words of William Booth, 
the founder of the Salvation Army who says it's the nature of a fire to go out, so you've got to keep it stirred, keep it fed, keep the ashes removed. And friend, the way you do that and the way I do it is we live our life always looking to Calvary. Because if we understand who Jesus is, He's the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. If we understand what he did, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. We know that because of Calvary, everything changes and everything becomes clear and in focus only as we gaze upon Christ and him crucified. He died so that we may live. He became sin so that we could overcome sin. There is a fountain and it's filled with blood. And it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. And they lose all of their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though cluttered as he, wash all of my sins away. And there may I, though vile and cluttered as he, wash all my sins away. Friend, how do you keep the fire stirred? How do you keep it fed? How do you keep the ashes removed? Don't ever forget the gospel. Don't ever take your gaze off of Christ. Let us fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy before him, he suffered it all. And Jesus died and rose again so that you may have life eternal. The way you keep the fire stoked and stirred and fed and ashes removed is you never forget what Jesus did at Calvary. It changes how you live everyday life. It's not just good news for a Sunday. It helps me Tuesday morning. And it helps me Friday night. And it equips me Saturday afternoon. And Jesus helps me in all things. It is only through the cross and him crucified does everything become focused. So this morning, set your gaze upon Christ and allow him to stoke the fire. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Lord, uh, we thank you for this day. Uh, we pray that you will have your way in this moment. Um, if there's someone here who does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today is the day of salvation. If there's one here who is cluttered, if there's one here who is, who is complacent, Father, help us just to fall at your feet right now, right here, and help you to stoke that fire again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.